In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we've got some exciting topics. We will start off by doing a very cursory um, discussion of an update on the coronavirus numbers, but then quickly rotate uh, to focus on uh, Trump's rhetoric surrounding mail-in voting, um, some facts about mail-in voting, um, just kind of trying to get to the truth of the matter for that, um, and his, his attempts to undermine the post office and our election system. And then we're going to talk a little bit about um, some of the biggest news coming out of uh, politics this past week, which is Biden's uh, selection of Kamala Harris as his VP. And then we'll finish out with talking about um, what a Biden-Harris ticket looks like from a policy perspective compared to not just, you know, a a Trump-Pence ticket, but compared to an Obama-Biden ticket. So, if we, you know, when we move forward with supporting Biden-Harris, how progressive is that going to be compared to Obama when he was president? Yeah. Very heavy electoral politics this week. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is appropriate because this week is the DNC. So as we're recording this, uh, I believe Bernie Sanders is actually giving his speech at the DNC. Mm. Uh, I, I plan on catching up on that later, uh, and I would definitely advise other people to do the same. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I don't think I've actually ever watched any of the DNC really? before, so I'm really excited to do that this week. Really? Yeah. Well, yeah. it's it's definitely going to be different because it's all remote. Yeah. Um, there's definitely something really powerful about seeing people in these you know massive chambers with uh, you know screaming folks around them. Um, <laughs> I remember watching Bernie Sanders' speech in the DNC uh, last in the last election. Um, and even, even Hillary Clinton's speech made me very excited to vote against Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Deja vu all over again. This, yeah. This yeah. No. Well, well, we'll see. We'll see if Biden's able to do that. Um, we'll see if he's able to, uh, keep himself in a good headspace long enough in order to deliver that level of inspiration in this here DNC. I'll hold that hope. I think, yeah. that, I think that's possible. Trying to be hopeful. It has not been a very hopeful week or year. Or, you know, four or, years. <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah. um, but there is always hope. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that, that might sound cheesy, childish, and naive, but what the hell else do we have? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, what do you work um, towards if not something So better? let's get started by talking about the numbers for COVID. Yeah. Speaking of hope. Speaking of there hope. There is none. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So the, the, the numbers. Overall, this week in the world, we're at 21.9 million cases, up from 20.2 million last week, or a 10% increase, which is a slower increase from um, you know the past few weeks. Um, of those, the U.S. makes up 5.6 million cases, or 25% of all the world's cases. Um, and we make up only 5% of the world population. Yes. Always a really important anchoring uh, statistic to remember. It's almost as if we're uniquely bad at addressing the pandemic. Hmm. 
for a lot of reasons. <laughs> um, and then uh, from the perspective of deaths um, worldwide, we have seven, 776,000 deaths. Um, the U.S. is at 173,000, so that makes up 22% of the world's deaths. Um, so 25% of the world's cases, 22% of the world's deaths. Um, so it's a little less deadly in the United States proportionally. Um, and for both the world and the U.S., it's a 5% week-over-week increase in deaths. And from a recoveries perspective, the world has hit 14.7 million recovered, which is 67% of total cases. Um, and that's a 13% increase, which is great. Um, the U.S. has hit 2.9 million recovered, which is 53% of U.S. cases. And it's only 20% of the total world's recoveries. Um, so even though you know we've got a lower death rate, we also have a significantly lower recovery um, you know, recovered rate as a proportion of cases. So that, that indicates mostly that we've got a lot more active cases, um, than the world overall. Yeah. Some numbers that in some ways are improving, but are still pretty bleak at this point. Yeah. Uh, and, and with numbers like that, I think it's very fair to say that anything we can do to prevent massive gatherings inside or, you know, I don't know, lines leading mm -hmm. up to indoor activities would probably be a good idea to do. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that, Michael? I would say if you, if you want to listen to the CDC and medical experts um, and also common sense, definitely. That is, that is definitely a good idea. What, what are you driving at, Nathan? Well, I, I, it's just I was looking at the date, and it appears to be 2020. Hmm. And if I recall, uh, every four years we have an election. Mm -hmm. I believe it's on the presidential level. Wow, that's and, huge. And, and elections, especially on the presidential level, often do involve a lot of people lining up hmm. to do indoor to do an indoor activity yeah 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 so maybe we should avoid that yeah maybe we should like but Don't we still vote. need to have an election <laughs> <laughs> no but we still need to have an election so if only there was some type of i don't know i'm just throwing this out there this might sound crazy but if only there were some type of delivery service like like a a, a box mm, that you could like a text message because <laughs> this is 2020 so, like a text message but like on paper you know mm. that you could put a piece of paper in it to mm -hmm. say who you're voting for mm -hmm. so that you can vote remotely but it needs to be on paper so there's some type of trail you yeah know, so there's a paper trail i don't, I don't know what that some is type of system like that i don't know what you're really getting at but it's i like, can tell you right now it would definitely be full of fraud <laughs> <laughs> And also disadvantaged Republicans, right? Yeah, it would completely disadvantage Republicans. Actually, what's interesting is I was I was just reading, um, I was reading about this in I believe it, uh, the Brookings Institute. Mm -hmm. uh, they released a analysis of mail-in voting, and although it's it's definitely going to be different this time around because yeah. a lot of the people that are going to be voting for Biden are going to be voting by mail because statistically Democrats tend to take the pandemic more seriously. Mm -hmm. But the way it usually is, is that older people tend to utilize mail-in voting a lot more mm -hmm. and older people tend to skew Republican. So interestingly enough, 
mail-in voting, having ready access to absentee mail-in voting, in some ways normally would actually advantage Republicans because yeah. more old people, more older people are able to vote. Yeah. But that's not going to be the case this time around, and Trump knows it. There's a lot of, of various studies and statistics that have come out, and they have shown that, you know, like I said, Biden supporters are more likely to vote by mail. Mm-hmm. So if you were so obviously seeing that Trump was like, well, regardless, we live in a democracy and it is very important that everybody be able to vote and everybody have their vote count. Mm-hmm. That sounds like him. That's like that's very that's very similar to the way that he speaks. Or I'm actually, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so as we've talked about a few times on this show, um, Trump and, and the Republicans have been, you know, critical of mail-in voting and and been pushing this false narrative that mail-in voting leads to higher degrees of of voter fraud and also that it tends to advantage democrats um and so they've been like pushing against this and trump has taken some you know has taken his less direct rhetoric around about the harms, the potential harms of mail-in voting, and try to turn that into specifically targeting the ways that people vote. Yeah. So, which, which, real quick, before we get into that, um, I know that we've mentioned this before, but I do think we should bring it up again, just really quick. There's no evidence of yeah. widespread voter fraud due to mail-in voting. There was a Washington yeah. Post analysis in which they identified only 372 possible cases of double voting or voting on behalf of a deceased person mm-hmm. out of 14.6 million votes cast. And this was between the years of 2016 and 2018. Yeah. And for reference, that's 0.0025%. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really not a huge problem. And one of the things we're going to do today is talk a little bit about why that is, because there is, you know, some intuitive, um, there seems to be some intuitive validity to yeah. the claim that it would be easier to put it out a fraudulent ballot um, by mail than it would be in person. So we yeah. want to talk about the safeguards for that and why that actually doesn't happen yeah. very often. But first, let's talk about what Trump had to say this week in which he did that thing that he does where, like, Everybody is saying that he's doing something because of a certain reason. And then his surrogates go out and say, no, no, that's definitely not the reason why he's doing it. And then he comes out and says, no, it totally is. Yeah. Yeah. But on this, on this case, it's, it's even like more hilarious because a lot of Republicans are like, no, we want people to vote by mail. It helps us sometimes. Like there are a lot of Republican (laughs) voters that vote by mail. For instance, Utah is almost entirely a vote by mail state and is reliably Republican. Yeah. So, yeah. so Trump was on an interview on Fox News, and he said, quote, they want $3.5 billion for something that'll turn out to be fraudulent. That's election money, basically. They want $3.5 billion for the mail-in votes, universal mail-in ballots. They want $25 billion, billion for the post office. Now they need that money in order to make the post office work so it can take all these millions and millions of ballots. But if they don't get those two items, that means you can't have universal mail-in voting because they're not equipped to have it. So, you know, it's like, it's like 
building a wall around the neighborhoods that are reliably democratic and saying, well, if you can't get to the polling station, then you can't vote. This is after he has hamspringed the USPS. Uh, he installed a sycophant as the postmaster general. Mm -hmm. He is doing all that he can in order to uh, reduce the funding and reduce the resources, which the criticism that is often lobbed, and actually this was a criticism that he had made earlier, is that the Postal Service does not have the resources to handle this level of an influx of ballots. Mm -hmm. So Donald Trump deliberately, deliberately made sure that that was true. Yeah. And not only that, he's admitting that the reason why he's doing it is to hurt, is to, to hurt Democrats. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. He's saying the quiet part out loud again. Yeah. yeah. And, and just to hammer this point home, like this, this, you know, comment that he made hinges on three false claims. One, and the most basic, is that, you know, he implied by the they that he was referring to in his comment was like the Democrats. He was saying that the Democrats want this, you know, money for the election. And calling it election money, he's basically trying to say that the Democrats are trying to buy the election. But the thing is that the $25 billion that is recommended for Postal Service funding is actually recommended by the Board of Governors of the U.S. Postal Service, who are all Trump appointees. So this is coming from Republicans that say that, say that the Postal Service needs this money. The second thing is that um, he's basically trying to make the claim that all of that, you know, $3.5 billion for mail-in voting will go directly to, like, fraudulent voting. And he's basically trying to say that the fraudulent voting will all go to Democrats, and so the Democrats are literally just trying to, to buy the election and be corrupt. And the last thing is that, you know, the last thing which is implied in that claim is that it, it does benefit Democrats, which, you know, studies show that it doesn't. So even if you were a really, like, partisan Republican who was trying to disenfranchise Democrats, you would still want to support mail-in voting. Yeah. And also... Trying to destroy the Postal Service in the process of this doesn't just hurt the election. Yeah. Honestly, this is class warfare. A lot of uh, areas of lower socioeconomic status, a lot of rural areas really depend mm -hmm. on the Postal Service in order to get their stuff, in order to uh, pay their bills. Yeah. You know, a lot of people in lower socioeconomic statuses that don't have access to pay for pay bills electronically, they depend on the postal service in order to pay those. Yeah. And if you take that away from them, then they can't pay their bills. So not only is this a completely fascist attempt to cheat in the election, but it's class warfare against yeah. a lot of a lot of areas that heavily support Trump. Yes. This is going to hurt his own supporters. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like UPS and, um, you know, DHL and FedEx, they actually like don't provide regular, regularly accessible support to a lot of really super rural areas. The Postal Service, there's a reason it is a key component of our uh, federal infrastructure. And it's that embedded is into the Constitution. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's critical to uniting our society. It's critical to providing access to our society to everyone. Um, and I don't know if you've noticed, with the pandemic, people are not doing things outside as much. They're not going and getting things as much. And so what they are doing is ordering a lot more stuff. And so 
The Postal Service just released its third uh, fiscal quarter financial results, and shipping and packages volume has increased by 7.8 million pieces compared to the same quarter last year, which is a 50% increase. So they're shipping 50% more packages, and they're expected to do it with the same amount of funding. And that's at the same time that their revenue from other sources like marketing, because businesses have largely shut down a lot of their marketing efforts in order to save cash during this really freaking bad economic time. So their revenue is down and yet they're expected to deliver more packages flawlessly and also support um, a tremendous increase in mail-in voting. You know, mo uh, some states estimate that they're going to see 10 times the level of mail-in voting that they have in the past. And so, you know, the idea that you wouldn't support the Postal Service anyway during this crazy time when they're critical for our nation and our national infrastructure is insane. And then add to the fact that they are a key component, a gatekeeper to access to our political process during a presidential election. It's absolutely insane not to put money into this organization. The final thing that we want to do on this subject is to actually talk about what steps are taken in order to reduce fraud. Because like Michael said earlier, a lot of people intuitively might think, oh, well, you're receiving a letter. Nobody's necessarily watching you fill it out, mm -hmm. or at least no, no official is watching you fill it out. And then you're just sending it in. Well, couldn't you very easily do that for a dead person? Couldn't you request a ballot for a dead person? Or couldn't you request that they send it to one place and then you fill out a ballot and then request that they send it to another place and then fill out another ballot? It seems intuitive that there is a large potential for fraud, which is why I think that a lot of Republicans and conservatives see the numbers that we read where there is almost no evidence of widespread voter fraud, and they're just like, I don't believe it. Yeah, they just assume that it must be just really difficult to tell if there's fraud yeah. or that someone's just lying. And to be fair to them, I think that, you know, Democrats and liberals and progressives haven't done as good of a job as they could have in not only explaining the results, not only explaining the numbers, but also explaining the process. Yeah. So we want to just take a second and lay out exactly how mail-in voting works, what happens when you're actually doing it, and what precautions are taken in order to ensure that it, fraudulent activity is almost non-existent. Yeah, exactly. So... Yeah, so let's start off by, by kind of just laying a bit of the, the background. Fraud in voting is kind of like getting audited on your taxes. It's scary, but it doesn't really happen that much. <laughs> and so it's not really something you have to be worried about that much. And, and let's, let's keep in mind, like there are millions and millions of votes cast in this nation. Some of them being fraudulent almost doesn't matter at all. Remember the, yeah. the number Nathan called out? I think it was, what, 0.025% or something like that? 0.0025%. Uh, yeah, exactly. An or <laughs> yeah, exactly. An order of magnitude smaller than even that. It's just, it's yeah. so infinitesimally small that it can't make a difference. Yeah. And the second thing that we should definitely keep in mind is that this is already a thing. 
Like mail-in voting is already a really important part of our electoral process. It is a total red herring to make it seem like this is a totally new thing that we've never done before and we should be really, really worried about all the implications that it has. Or that procedurally that it's any different than absentee voting. Yes, because it is not. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and it will happen a lot more this year. Um, but, like, we have good processes in place. So, so just to put some numbers behind that. So one in four voters in the U.S. voted by mail in 2016. Lots of states are mostly mail-in states. 46 states in total allow various mail vote-by-mail procedures. And many states, including Colorado, Colorado and Utah, are almost entirely vote-by-mail. Um, another thing that, like, as I was doing research on this topic, was really interesting to me is that what makes the type of voter fraud that is being characterized by Trump not scary, like... Oh, you're gonna you're gonna be a false witness on an absentee ballot. Oh no, or like, oh, you're gonna vote for a dead person. Well, there's there's one dead person that you know, and you're I guess you're gonna figure out how to vote for you them. Mean a dead person's gonna vote. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're gonna use a dead person's credentials to vote. But like, what what it makes more sense to be scared about is like large scale systemic uh, voter fraud, right? Like being yeah. able to try to put together huge uh, coordinated attempts to commit fraud on millions of ballots. That That's the kind of thing that would tip an election and actually be problematic. But there are lots of reasons why that is almost impossible. In fact, election experts say that it would be nearly impossible for someone to put that together, especially foreign actors, which is something with that you, know, you may actually be worried about. Yeah. So, so one reason why that's true is that the election system is really decentralized. So across lots of states and jurisdictions, um, you know, all of their requirements are slightly different. And importantly, all of their ballots are slightly different. So for think about this. For every combination of school board members, city councilors, um, county officials in the U.S., there is a different ballot configuration, which means that, you know, at most, you might be able to falsify one county or maybe a couple of counties, which, which each individual county may have hundreds of ballot configurations, and there are 3,000 or more counties in the U.S. So it would be really, really difficult to actually put even, even create the ballots that would be used for like a large-scale falsification of voter records. At the same time, Ballots are only counted if they meet really precise specifications for this exact reason, so you can't make fake ones. And those specifications include a specific type of paper as well as specific technical markings, which are similar to barcodes. Um, and note, you can't find what kind of paper it is. Like, it's not published out there that you go like, oh, just get this one kind of paper from Alphys Max and print up your own ballot. Which is a good thing. Yes, Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, and all of these things are security measures, which make it more expensive and slightly more cumbersome to vote by mail, but make it much more secure. So you should be happy yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, they also make sure to take step, take additional steps in the actual um, process of mailing it. So you can't 
this is according to the Brookings Institute. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't request a ballot for a person that is mailed to your address as opposed to that person's official address with the election authorities. Mm -hmm. um, and because of this, even if somebody wanted to wait by a mailbox for the absentee ballot so that they could try to falsify it and then send it, um, they would never know which day the absentee ballot would arrive because voters can request them weeks in advance. Yeah. Furthermore, in order to even request an absentee ballot, you have to be a registered voter. Which is huge. Yeah. Because that's a huge part of the process in general. Like, if you think about the actual steps that are taken when you arrive at the polling place, you know, they check your registration card, check your address that matches your photo ID, and if they even require a photo ID, and then check your photo against your ID. It's like, yeah. that's, the real work is done on the part of the registration, which is required yeah. of absentee ballots. Yeah, it, and it only gets mailed to the official address listed in the voter registration rolls. Mm -hmm. um, you have to have a signature. So there's an internal envelope and an external envelope. You have to put a signature on the external envelope and then put the internal envelope within that. So that, that way it still remains a secret ballot. So yeah. people can see who sent it on the external envelope, but they can't see that in the internal envelope. So mm. they don't know necessarily know who voted for uh, whom, but they do know who sent the specific envelope that allows them to determine whether or not this is actually legitimate. And a lot of different states actually do have various programs in which they cross-reference those signatures. And during mm -hmm. this entire process, once they receive it, or once requests are made, they do cross-reference with death records to make sure that a dead person is not requesting it. When it is also sent, you also have election authorities make sure that the ballot came from the address of the actual voter. And then the final contingency is, like I said, uh, making sure that if there are questions, that there are ways of checking the signatures against verified signatures of the voter. So these are steps that make it really difficult for people to fake it. Like yeah. the idea of voting for a dead person, that's really difficult because they check death records. The idea of double voting, that's really difficult because you it can only be sent to the address that's on file and it can only be sent from the address that's on file mm -hmm. and the idea of people coming and trying to steal the ballot and filling it out for someone that isn't that isn't there well they have to know exactly when it arrives they have to be wait basically stalking your house yeah and then quickly run in and grab it and that just that's just not efficient that's just not worth it for one vote and and that's exactly the most important point the only way that anyone would ever set up a scheme you know investing hours and manpower into trying to corrupt an election would be if they could do it at scale doing you know recruiting the followers of QAnon to one by one try to corrupt a single ballot would be so inefficient and silly and ridiculous and wouldn't have any impact ultimately and so, also even when that does even when it does happen it's almost always caught. There was that case in North Carolina mm -hmm. where there were a bunch of people that were claiming to be official election um, folks coming to houses and basically collecting ballots from uh, minority neighborhoods and then just throwing them away. And, it, yeah. and they discovered it 
and it complete and they completely threw out the election results and they had another special election later in order to make up for it. Yeah. So when people see cases like that, the fact that it was caught should make you feel a little bit more secure because it's really hard to to do it. It's really hard to get away with it. And ultimately, it's just not worth it. Yeah. Exactly. And so, and because of all that, the thing we should actually be worried about is not attempts by the boogeyman of voter fraudsters to, you know, corrupt our elections and disenfranchise people, but we should be worried about the attempts of elected officials in doing that. You yeah. worry about you worry about um you know, instances like what happened in Georgia with Stacey Abrams' election. That's yeah. something to be worried about. You worry Throwing about... Throwing out voter rolls, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You worried about... Yeah, you worry about cleansing voter rolls of registered voters that haven't been, you know, just haven't voted recently. The problem is not voter fraud. The problem is election fraud. Exactly. And, and Donald Trump is literally trying to push us in that direction. And... Yeah. You know, by by reducing funding when the post office needs it most, um, he's trying to push us towards a a disenfranchised election. And the post office recently sent a letter to 46 states plus uh, D.C. saying that they won't be able to ensure that they'll be able to deliver the ballots um, in time for votes to be counted based on those states' specific um absentee ballot deadlines so these are cases where people are you know following the state's guidelines sending their ballots close to the state deadline but them still not being able to be counted because they won't be delivered in time because the post office is lacking resources yeah trump claims that 2020 is going to be the most fraudulent election in american history and if he gets his way he'll be right And now it's time for one of our more lighthearted and enlightening segments, Tips for Good. So, Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good? Well, Michael, we do Tips for Good every week because... So a guy walks into an agent's office. No, Nathan, you are not telling another goddamn aristocrat's joke. <laughs> and also to make the world a better place. <laughs> Excellent. So what is that our tip for That was for the this? maybe two people in our audience that understood that joke. <laughs> If you haven't, uh, either look up the joke or um, watch, there's an episode of The Office where Dwight tells the joke at like the most inappropriate time ever. But but don't 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 watch it at work. Definitely don't watch that at no, work. No no no. <laughs> so uh, yeah, what is our tip for good this week, Nathan? Well, Michael, our tip for good this week is don't give me problems. Give me solutions. Wow. Let's be a little bit more specific about that. <laughs> um, so one of the things that Michael and I really try to do when we talk about problems is to specifically address how to solve them. Because otherwise, it's just two guys who are relatively smart talking about how great the world would be if it weren't so bad. And that really doesn't help anyone. And the reason why I'm specifically bringing it up this week is because there has been this massive sort of counter push against Black Lives Matter in which a lot of conservatives have been using the incredibly 
tragic killing of five-year-old Kanon Hinnon in order to silence Black Lives Matter protests. So in case you haven't heard of this, there's this five-year-old kid named Kanon, and he was senselessly killed by his neighbor while he was riding a bike, you know, and no ifs, ands, or buts about it, his life mattered. And our deepest condolences do go out to his family. And it's absolutely terrible when something like this happens, especially to a child. And a lot of conservatives seem to be using the fact that there hasn't been massive protests over his death as evidence that people that care about Black Lives Matter don't care when it's anybody who's not black or when it is someone that doesn't fit a certain narrative. But the issue is, and the major difference is, they're not advocating for some type of institutional change. They're just advocating for black people to shut up, basically. So in this case, there was a massive manhunt for the killer. He was arrested within like two days of the act. He's denied bail and he is almost certainly going to be spending the rest of his life behind bars as he should. In other words, so far the system has worked exactly as we would intend it to work. Exactly. So what would there, like when you protest, you are protesting to change some kind of policy, to change something institutional. Yeah. So that's why there haven't been protests. If you want to say that, there should be protests because there needs to be a higher emphasis on mental health because, you know, whatever caused this person to snap, that needs to be addressed. Or if you want to do protests saying um, that this person should be given the death penalty, at least you're advocating for something. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't believe in the death penalty personally, but at least that would be something institutional that you're actually advocating for. But that's not what they're doing. So... This kind of brings me to this overarching idea that whenever you are protesting something, you can't just talk about a tragedy or a problem and then just stop right there because that's not helping anybody. The fact that you're able to identify that a terrible thing is bad. Congratulations. You want a cookie? What's really important, what true advocacy is, is finding how to, number one, solve the problem, or number two, prevent it from happening in the future. Yeah. So if you are somebody that deeply cares about activism, and you're not just being intellectually dishonest in order to shut down other conversations, then always make sure that you have a specific solution in mind that you are thinking about, that you're talking about when you are advocating. And that's Tips for Good. So for our second segment today, we wanted to talk about some of the most exciting news coming out of the uh, Democratic primary uh, going into the 2020 presidential election, which is the selection of Kamala Harris as the running mate for Joe Biden. Um, as Exciting? <laughs> exciting. <laughs> exciting like, like heat excites an atom. You know, things <laughs> things happen. Things are happening. <laughs> things are happening. <laughs> yeah. No, I I got to so 
I gotta say I was not pleased with this pick. Um, and if you listened to a lot of our debate breakdowns back during the primary, you you've probably already heard a lot of my criticisms of uh, Kamala Harris. Um, and I'm not I don't want to rehash too many of them. Uh, I will go ahead and brief and bring up the fact that I am still salty with her for completely doing a 180 on Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. You know, I believe it was incredibly intellectually dishonest and it really did show us who she was and it showed us who she was working for. She said what progressives wanted to hear and then she got ahead and then she completely flipped on it and then she went down. Uh, it's almost as if those two things might be related. And it's also important to address that she does have a very problematic record as California's attorney general and also as the San Francisco district attorney. There were several cases in which she had some very problematic positions and she made some very problematic calls. For example, she refused to endorse a 2015 bill calling for a special prosecutor to investigate deadly police shootings. And this Mm -hmm. is according to the New York Post. Um, She rejected calls from civil rights groups to investigate police shootings in Los Angeles and San Francisco following the 2014 killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. She did require her own people within the California Department of Justice to have body cameras, but she refused to support legislation mandating it for all police officers. Mm -hmm. And look, I could go on. I do also want to point out that these things were not forever ago. You know, yeah. it's when we talk about the life of a politician, especially in this re- most recent election cycle, some of the t- sometimes we're referencing bills that people voted on 20 or 30 years ago, which yeah. could seem really, really or, different. Or in Biden's case, uh, 20 million years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, you know, his policies regulating large dinosaurs just don't apply today. (laughs) He did have some pretty problematic views on the Stegosaurus. (laughs) Yeah, he was pro-meteor, which now seems great, but could you imagine the blowback at the time? (laughs) No, but, uh, but, but, so yeah, so like sometimes when you're hashing out these voter, uh, you know, these, these problematic behaviors, it can, you know, it was a long time ago is the argument um, yeah, it was problematic at the time. You've grown, developed as a person since then. In the case of Kamala Harris, like she was district attorney of San Francisco from 2004 to, two, to 2011 and attorney general of California from 2011 to 2017. So like, you know, when she was n- not, you know, wanting to support investigations into police killings and, um, you know, requirements of special prosecution, um, for you know, you know, killings by police officers, the, that was all relatively recently. That was that was yeah. That was not before, you know, pushes for racial equality and Black Lives Matter. Yeah, and it does seem that she seemed to take a complete career one eighty when she became senator in two thousand seventeen. Her voting record, in a lot of ways, has been a lot more liberal mm-hmm. and a lot more pro-racial justice since she got to the Senate. Yeah. But again, it was a major shift 
in her original policy positions. And, you know, you got to wonder, why is that? Is it because of special interests? Is it because now she has a more she has a national profile and there's a lot more eyes on her? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'd say I say this is a topic that, you know, we should dig into a little bit more because as I see it, some of her biggest drawbacks you know, we we could we could argue over the specifics of what we think the the perfect healthcare policy is or the right healthcare policy is, um, and ultimately, like that would generally put Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders on solidly in the front running, and then everybody else somewhere trailing behind. And Harris is don't no forget different. about Andrew Yang. Yes, oh, excuse me, Andrew <laughs> Yang. Yes. Um, so so, but but in general, like we could we want to talk and focus on policies, but there is this huge um, thorn, I think, in the side of Harris as a pick, at least for, it seems like, a lot of progressives, and that is a feeling that she not only has waffled, but has kind of, has specifically tried to read the political tea leaves and followed kind of whatever the most... um, you know, expedient political movies at the time, which, you know, maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, probably more likely to be bad. But ultimately, you worry that without, you know, the proper motivation, she won't push to get the right things done. And so I definitely wanted to talk a little bit about that, because like, you know, that was one of the things that turned a lot of people off in the primary to Harris was her switch on, on, or a lot of progressives anyways, was her switch from... Uh, Medicare for all, which she also, you know, she signed on to Bernie's Bernie's Medicare for all bill in the Senate and then kind of walked that back to like a 10 year transition plan, basically from a public option to to Medicare for all a decade down the line. Um, And so like this this pattern that we've seen is in some ways a bit worrying. Yeah. Or as Trump calls her the most liberal senator in the Senate. Well, which. and and he also was like, which you know, for the Senate, like that that means something. It's like, no, that actually doesn't mean anything. Yeah. <laughs> the Senate is super moderate. Yeah, and also like most liberal. Are you kidding me? Yeah, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, like yeah. <laughs> two yeah. people that had major national profiles in the last year mm-hmm. that are clearly more liberal than she is. Yeah, well, one of the things he's probably referencing is a couple of like third party groups that, you know, try to quantify a um a senator's like voting record and put them yeah. on a single spectrum of, you know, um progressive to not progressive. Um and, and one of those groups is progressivepunch.org, which gave her an A rating as a progressive voter, um, and listed her as the fourth most progressive um senator based on her lifetime um, like her full her full senatorial career on crucial votes. So that's places where she, like crucial, like important progressive issues where she was one of the, you know, deciding votes. And I think this is like one of the, one of the things that Trump is referencing, um, calling her one of the most progressive voters. And... No, she said, he said the most liberal. <laughs> the most liberal. You're right. He does not qualify statements. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, he never qualifies statements. Yeah. yeah so, um, so that's not true. Um, <laughs> but she has pushed since her arrival in the Senate in a lot of 
progressive directions. And similar to the trajectory of the Biden campaign overall, which started off relatively moderate, um, kind of trying to appeal to the establishment Democrat security vote, um, and has shifted left, um, so her career has has shifted in the more progressive direction. Um, and I think, I mean, compared to the, the Biden campaign, certainly before the task force came out with a bunch of policies, um, she's definitely more progressive than, than Biden was. Oh, yeah. And one thing that I will say, so one thing that's very clear to me is that she was selected not as the vice president, but as the next president. <laughs> Biden himself has referred to his candidacy, his presidency as being a transition presidency. Yeah. And he has said that if his health gets in the way, he won't seek reelection. And based on how we've been seeing him, I think there's a strong possibility that he will not run for a second term. In fact, he might not even make it out of his first term. Not mm -hmm. because like, not necessarily because I think he's going to pass away in office due to health complications, but I think that there's a good chance that, um, his health will start to decline a little bit more. Um, you know, we, we have been has seen a huge difference in him cognitively, even just four years ago. Mm -hmm. And, um, four years from now, I assume that's going to be exacerbated even more. So I think there's a good chance that he's not going to make it all four years. I could be wrong, yeah. but I think there's a good chance that he selected Harris to be the next president. And one important difference between Harris and Biden is that Biden has taken a lot more hard stances against progressives. Like he is unequivocally said that he is not for Medicare for all. He's even said that he would veto it, mm -hmm. which is ridiculous. Um, he's taken a hard stance against legalization of marijuana, which is absolutely ridiculous. Harris has at least shown that she can be bullied into the right position, mm -hmm. which, you know, you might argue like, well, Biden's better because at least he's honest about his positions. And yeah, maybe that might make him more principled, and more but, predictable, perhaps. And more predictable. But... But Trump point... is honest about his positions. <laughs> we care about the positions. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also, um, politics is about policy. It's not about people. Or at least it's not about the individual politician. Mm -hmm. It's not about whether or not you like the politician. It's about what they can do. It's about what they can get done. And if a Harris presidency or vice presidency is able to allow us to get some of these major policy priorities in place, then that's a positive thing. Mm -hmm. So the important point to make about her is that she's not going to be an activist, but she might be persuadable or at least she might be bullyable. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd say that's probably true. And she, I mean, and the thing is like, when we say she's not going to be an activist, she's not going to be, like what Bernie Sanders would be yeah. um, as president. But the fact yeah. is that, you know, she has pushed and I'm sure will con continue to push a lot of really important stuff, even if it's not a lot of stuff that we would call like the perfect solution. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and also it's important to note that she is a talented debater Mm -hmm. She is a very good rhetorician. I will admit that despite my own personal feelings about her, I'm looking forward to seeing her on a debate stage with Mike Pence because yeah. 
she's going to eat him and then crap him out on stage and just leave this pile of crap that used to be the vice president. Yeah, who who is was already a pile of crap, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, will be freshly made. Um, <laughs> but also, like one of the things I did want to talk about is that I'd say, like in a lot of ways, this pick was a pretty strategic one for Biden yeah. and the Biden campaign. Um, so first of all, like, what better way to contrast yourself? as an old white man running for president yeah. from another old white man running for president than by picking a female person of color um, to be- To your... run against the vice president who yeah. is an old white man. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, on, on a ticket that's notoriously racist. Like, yeah. you, couldn't, you couldn't set up a better contrast, like, just viscerally um, than yeah. putting that together. So- like yeah. definitely strategic there. Also, like, um, it's. I feel like it's also a pretty good move for Biden to pick someone who we all remember was really vocally against, a, a, like him and a lot of his policies. Which may yeah. be kind of a controversial thing to say, but I feel like his push, which we saw um, when Bernie stepped away and he he invited Bernie to help him form his task force. Um, is going to be one of uniting the Democratic Party. And I can't yeah. imagine a better way to like sow the seeds of, of unity than by really putting your money where your mouth is and, and inviting someone that you respect and heartily disagree with in a lot of ways to be your running partner. So. I mean, I think it would have been, I can think of a better way than Elizabeth <laughs> Warren, but you know, <laughs> fair um, enough. But 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 I do think that you do bring up a very good point, which shows a unique contrast between him and Donald Trump. Donald Trump has even basically made the point that, based on how viciously uh, Kamala Harris attacked him, especially in the first debate, mm-hmm. that he was like, "Well, why would Joe Biden pick somebody?" that was against him so much yeah and the answer to that is well it's because joe biden's not a child like you he's not a petulant (laughs) child exactly and he's able to put aside those differences around the edges Mm -hmm. in order to try to create a sense of unity or at least a sense of um like a sense of togetherness yeah like that's a huge difference between him and president Trump. And look, I'm under no delusions that Kamala Harris is comes from a different wing of the democratic party than, uh, than Joe Biden. I think that they're both, you know, moderate establishment figures. And yeah, I would, I would even push back against the idea that they're unifying the moderate wing and the left wing of the democratic party. I don't think that this Mm -hmm. pick does that, Yeah, but I think it could potentially be perceived that way if we're looking at the country overall Mm -hmm. and that could be a positive thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the positive thing there is reflected at least so far in the preliminary polling coming out of um, the pick. So just to run through a couple of polls that are coming off of this, so NBC and, and the Wall Street Journal put together a poll where um, 39% of Americans had a positive view of Harris with 35 having a negative view, which in this survey actually put her as the only candidate 
um, on the ticket so far with a um, with more people with a positive view than a negative view. Um, and and a, a Fox News poll had kind of a similar result with a 44% favorable opinion versus a 40% unfavorable. And that's compared to a 53% uh, favorable for, for Joe Biden and a 43% favorable for Donald Trump. So, you know, she's, she's uh, not as popular as Biden in that poll, but still more popular than Donald Trump. Um, and, and importantly, Donald Trump has a 55% unfavorable rating in that poll versus a 40% unfavorable for Harris. Um, and then ABC and, and um, uh, the Washington Post put together a poll that found that 54% of Americans said that they approve of uh, Harris as being the pick for the VP. But importantly, 86% of Democrats said that they approved. So overall, like it seems like Joe Biden has picked a running mate who could be a good strategic differentiator from Trump in a very clear and, and obvious way. Also potentially a good, um, you know, unity force with some portions of the Democratic Party, perhaps not the the uh, progressive portions, but maybe some of the um, other groups that he might have alienated a little bit, uh, potentially African-Americans, um, who's, you know, He's had some things that have not gone yeah. well uh, um, yeah. with, <clears throat> and and overall the polling indicates that, you know, if he's going for someone that is at least moderately popular, he's gotten someone good. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Ass Hat, hat of, of the, the week. week. So Nathan, who is our lucky ass hat this week? Well, Michael, our asshat this week is somebody that I am super surprised that it took us this long to bring him into the fold. It is the intellectual philosopher of the right, Ben Shapiro. Man, intellectual philosopher might be the most credit he's ever been given. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it was the Washington Post that like referred to him as like the intellectual of the right or some bullshit like that. Yeah, that is total <laughs> BS. Yeah. So uh, what did Benny Shapiro finally do to get him on our show? Yeah, well, Ben Shapiro had some things to say about Cardi B's new music video, uh, which is, I don't know if it's pronounced WAP or WAP. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, for those of you that don't know, that stands for Wet Ass Pussy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which I'm sure and, he appreciated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was the, the music video itself is it's basically about celebrating sexuality and being open about sexuality Yeah, in a very overt way in with some very graphic lyrics. Yeah. It is and, a pretty, that is a pretty positive way to put it. Like, you know, some of it is pretty astounding. But like not in ways that are bad, you know, it's like, yeah, exactly. it's just, it's just really surprising to hear people talk about, you know, um, like semi BDSM content in a rap song. Yeah. But again, it's about celebrating the fact that we are, we are becoming a more sexually liberated society, which sure. as someone that believes in sex positivity, I think that's absolutely a good thing. Yeah. Uh, but Ben Shapiro disagrees with it. <laughs> yeah. And, and he decided to do it by by slowly 
in his reedy high voice reading out the lyrics, the incredibly explicit lyrics of which, the song. Which, if you haven't seen the video of that, do yourself a yeah, favor and awesome. watch the video of that. He it like, is comic gold. He like, he like is trying to replace words that are not cuss words but like make them seem like cuss words by replacing he, he refers to like pussy as like p word and and the word dick as d word it's just like hilarious and like sometimes he trips over himself trying to censor it <laughs> and the whole time you they've got like right next to his head he's like he's like reading this these lyrics and right next to his head is like <laughs> cardi b and the other dancers like like dancing in the video <laughs> yeah. it's just awesome you, it couldn't have been better publicity for cardi b and then when he finishes it he says quote this is what feminists fought for this is what the feminist movement was all about. And if you say anything differently, it's because you're a misogynist, see? Okay, so a few things there. First off, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit jumbled in the point that he's trying to make. It seems that what he's trying to say is that um, if you... Uh, that feminists are arguing that if you disagree that sexual liberation is a good thing, that that makes you a misogynist. Mm. Okay. Seems pretty reasonable to me. If you if you honestly if you do think that it's bad for people to be open about their sexuality, especially women, mm -hmm. and the fact that feminists fought for the right to be have been fighting for the right to for sexual liberation, and if you think that that is inherently a bad thing, then yeah, that is misogynistic. So so Good right read, on, bro. Yeah, well done. <laughs> <laughs> but the best part, the best part of this is he had the most hilarious self-own that I have ever seen in my entire life in one tweet. He tweeted, quote, as I also discussed on the show, my only real concern is that the women involved who apparently require a mop and a bucket get the medical care they require. My doctor wife's differential diagnosis, bacterial vaginosis, yeast infection, or trichomonas. I love that. That's oh awesome. First of all, he's, you, he's never seen an his, aroused vulva. Yeah. He's never seen an aroused vulva in his life. Oh, my God. <laughs> I like that he, that's his only real concern. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sure. That's, that's why you got concern. on your radio show to talk yeah. about it for multiple yeah, I'm minutes. I'm worried about, um, it's like. It's like, oh, you're 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 feeling wet down there. That must be some type of medical issue. Yeah. I have never seen yeah, exactly. anything like that. I have no idea what is going on here. <laughs> oh, this, Dude, yeah. oh my god. Yeah, that's that's pretty <sighs> hilarious. I love that. That's like, I'm just I'm I'm glad that the total ridiculousness and silliness of this is is being recognized on the internet and let like what an amazing self-own just to put the cherry on top of the whole thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. If, uh, women, if you become sexually aroused, I'm sorry, you, you're ill. You have a disease. Yeah. You have a yeast infection. You're sick. Or... <laughs> <laughs> now, Ben Shapiro, you're sick. A deep and hearty congratulations to Ben Shapiro for being our Ass Hat of, of the Week. week.
So for our last segment, we wanted to talk about some points about hope. Um, and specifically, we talked a lot during the primary when we had a full stage of, you know, a variety of some really great Democratic candidates um, and some not so great ones about Biden's seeming strategy of running as like a watered down version of Obama 2.0. Yeah. And how that really would not be enough to cut it in this day and age. And yeah. the thing is like in Obama's endorsement of Biden, he basically agreed with us. He said, Obama said, quote, you know, I could not be prouder of the incredible progress that my, that we made together during my presidency. But if I were running today, I wouldn't run the same race or have the same platform as I did in 2008, which like yeah. is really clear. And so, yeah, well, the nature of progressivism is progress. Exactly. <laughs> and that's the big thing that we are trying to emphasize. And, you know, I don't know if Biden was listening or what, but he has made a lot of progress. Yeah. And look, we have been super critical of Joe Biden. We have been very passionately critical of Joe Biden. And I've, I've had a lot of conversations in my personal life with friends of mine um, in which we have had kind of deep disagreements in what our level of support should be for Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like the fallback when it comes to talking about why a person should vote for Biden if they're a progressive is always, well, he's not as bad as Trump. Yeah. And that might be true, but at the same time, I mean, my neighbor's cat is better than Trump. <laughs> yeah, like, and that's yeah, and that's something we were really worried about, right? Like we were hotly rejecting the idea that what we should be expecting from our president would be to go yeah. back to pre-Trump because pre-Trump is what got Trump elected. Yeah. So what we wanted to do today is to take a minute to talk about not just about how Biden's policy proposals at this point are better than Trump's. They obviously are. Mm -hmm. But also how they actually demonstrate legitimate improvement over Obama. Yeah. Because the most important thing that we need to do at this point, if we do win the presidency, if, if Biden does win the presidency, is to not just revert back to a time before Trump because then another one's just going to come along. Mm -hmm. It's to actually keep pushing towards the future. It can't just be delete everything that Trump did. It has to be reforms that are, make things better than they were under Obama. Yeah. Which Obama also recognizes. Now, I consider myself to the left of Joe Biden, and his current proposals to me are not enough. But it cannot be denied that compared to our current system, they're vast. There's a lot of vast and very necessary improvements in his overall agenda. One important topic area that I want to start out with is criminal justice. Mm -hmm. So one of the biggest things that I've been seeing from a lot of my more libertarian right-leaning friends is talking about how Joe Biden was the architect of the crime bill and Harris was a former prosecutor and attorney general who 
who had a lot of really heinous acts with regard to criminal justice. So there's a lot of people on the right that consider themselves libertarian right who are actually very passionate about criminal justice reform. And they point out the fact that based on their record, that's kind of like that's kind of problematic. That And that goes against a lot of what Democrats fight for. And juxtapose that with the fact that Donald Trump signed the First Step Act, which, look, if anybody ever asks me, say something, say one thing that is nice about Donald Trump, say one good thing about Donald Trump, mm-hmm. that's what I'm going to say. The First Step Act. It rolled back mandatory minimums and it made it easier for people to get time off their sentence. And it, it reduced overly harsh sentences for drug crimes. And I will always look at that as one good thing that he did do. Yeah. And that might have legs to stand on if it weren't for the fact that, number one, he's not really pushing for much more than that. Number two, he's been going all in with this tough-on-crime bullshit. Mm -hmm. And number three, when you look at the actual proposals that Biden and Harris are endorsing, they actually do push forward in reducing mass incarceration. Yeah. And even even going back a little bit further than that, under the Obama administration, which Biden was a part of, between the years of 2009 and 2016, the prison population, the federal prison population dropped by 5%. Mm-hmm. So he was a part of the administration that finally reversed the rise of mass incarceration yeah so that is important but let's look at specific places which maybe they don't go as far as we want them to but they still are necessary reforms marijuana decriminalization Mm -hmm. not as good as legalization but it would also it would make it so that states can make their own decisions and it would also make it so that um people that are currently serving prison time for marijuana would be retroactively released. Mm-hmm. That's super important. That's huge. That's huge. Yeah. Um, abolishing the death penalty. They supported abolishing the death penalty mm-hmm. on a federal level and incentivizing states to do it as well. Now, look, incentivizing is not the same as requiring, but a federal abolition is a massive step forward. Yeah. Ending mandatory minimum sentences on a federal level. Huge. Again, incentivizing states to repeal their mandatory minimums. Not requiring, but incentivizing. But still necessary. Mm -hmm. Retroactive reforms. Making all sentencing reforms retroactive to allow people to, uh, for to allow people to have individualized resentencing. Mm Mm-hmm. Abolishing ending, federal prisons, pre- federal private prisons. Yeah. Ending the federal crack and powder cocaine disparity. And again, this is coming straight. I'm reading this straight from the task force recommendations that Biden has endorsed. Mm-hmm. Just these simple reforms would be massive for criminal justice. Now, they don't go nearly far enough. And I'm definitely not advocating for just like, okay, we get these reforms done. We're done. We're good. Of course. Don't push any further. Don't try to get Biden to push any further. But these are reforms that would not only make things better than they are right now, but make things better than they were under Obama. Mm -hmm. He also 
is for raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. The current federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. Yeah. That is insane. Yes, it would be a huge step forward in that in that realm. And, you know, to contrast this to the Obama administration, like, I think 725 was set during the Obama administration. Yeah, so, it was. So the fact that, you know, he's pushing for a, almost a doubling of the federal minimum wage requirement is... Over a doubling. More than doubling the federal minimum wage requirement, which... You know, eight or ten years ago would have looked impossible. And now it's a minimum requirement that we expect. And the fact that he, as, you know, a person who's been in politics for a really long time, is actually listening to that and paying attention and is following the lead of progressives in that way and pushing the needle beyond the administration he was most recently a part of, is a really good and exciting thing. Yeah. And even in the realm of healthcare, which is probably my biggest disagreement with Biden. Oh, sure. Look, a public option is a massive improvement to the Affordable Care Act. Huge. A massive improvement. Now, it is not nearly enough. Medicare for all is the ultimate goal. And the fact that he's not fighting for it pisses me the hell off. Mm -hmm. But that would be a major improvement. That would be a major step towards universal health care. And it would mean a lot to a lot of low-income Americans. Mm -hmm. You know, let's, let's also not forget about the fact that he has shifted quite a bit on college tuition. He has endorsed free college tuition for public colleges and universities for families making a under... Uh, $150,000 a year. And also student loan forgiveness for families that fall under that category. Again, it's not as good as universal public college education, but it's a massive step forward. And it would mean, I mean, I know I fall under that category. That would mean a lot to my family. Yeah, I would mean, yeah, tremendous amount, especially for student loan forgiveness, at least yeah, just personally. Exactly. Yeah, so... Look, we do need to continue to be critical of Joe Biden. We do need to continue to be critical of Kamala Harris. And look, we on the Perspectrum try not to be partisan. Mm. You know, We are ideological, but we try not to be partisan, meaning that we try not to just blindly defend Democrats no matter what. Yeah. And we'll continue to be that way. But it is also important to recognize improvements where there are improvements. Yeah. And ultimately, our criticisms at this point, you know, we want the two people that are running for president and vice president, Biden and Harris, to be president and vice president. So yeah. our criticisms at this point, our advocacy at this point is, hey, like, come along. We've got a lot of work to do. Rather yeah. than, you know, what they were during the primary, which is, these are bad options compared to the best options that we could have. Yeah. Right now there are there are best options and they're good options. And now to close out our episode, we'll do our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? 
My highlight this week is that I finished moving out of my grandmother's basement. Whoa. And into my parents' house. <laughs> but it's only temporary. We're, we're hoping to close on a house within the next month. And, you know, there's no guarantees at this point, but it's looking like we'll be able to actually have our own place and be able to afford it. So it's a step towards that. So that's very exciting. Yeah, that's super yeah. exciting. Nice. Um, what about you, Michael? Um, so for me... I so we got a new TV and our old TV was very very old and yeah. I was just blown away by the difference in experience. It was like <laughs> it was like watching so the first movie we watched was The Revenant and it yeah. was astoundingly beautiful. I watched the whole thing with my mouth agape because like I hadn't seen a movie that way <laughs> yeah. in a really long time. Yeah. My parents recently got one of those like really good TVs yeah. upstairs and it's God, it's amazing. Yeah, it makes me actually like, want to watch like, movies. <laughs> yeah, no, Jess and I, uh, over over Christmas break, we we watched The Muppets Christmas Carol. <laughs> and uh, cinematic so masterpiece. <laughs> well, it was so high quality that we could that we could actually tell that the fake snow was fake. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> it's actually kind of annoying sometimes. Like if you watch The Office on a really nice TV, you can see where they hung the lights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> But, but it's really great. And, uh, yeah, so that's been a fun, that's been fun. And so with that, thank you so much for listening to the Perspectrum and you'll hear from us again 